We may have democracy, or we may have wealth concentrated in the hands of a few, but we can't have both. Hmm. I wonder which one we have at this point. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No thanks. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Here I am. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with you. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast that's heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California, on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. In Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids on WPRR, in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, Detour Talk, amongst other fine affiliates, and yes, your favorite podcast download sites. I'm Brad Friedman, blanketing planet Earth five days a week, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Desi Doyen, uh, perhaps I should have known it when I was woken up by an earthquake (laughs) this morning at 4.29 a.m. out here in L.A. that it was going to be one of those days. Oh, yes. Earthquakes of news, earthquakes of earthquakes, yes. Yeah, it wasn't a huge tremor. It was originally identified as 4.5 on the Richter scale, later uh, downgraded to 4.2, but it was uh, was shallow and not very far from us here in L.A., just a few miles away in the San Fernando valley so it was an early rough start to what has been a very rocky day uh with with more figurative if not literal quakes to come as the day unfolded let's start here herman cain the one-time republican presidential candidate and former ceo of godfather's pizza died from the coronavirus on Thursday. The 74-year-old Kane was hospitalized earlier this month, and his Twitter account said this week that he was being treated with oxygen. Uh, it is unknown where Kane contracted the virus. However, on June 20th, Herman Kane attended Donald Trump's controversial Tulsa rally without a mask, as well as most of the 6,000 or so attendees that day with no mask, even as coronavirus cases were already beginning to spike in Tulsa at the time. About two weeks later, Kane was hospitalized after testing positive for COVID-19, and about one month later today, he was announced dead from the disease. He was uh, co-chair of Black Voices for Trump, 
Kane was uh, one of the surrogates there to support Donald Trump at that Tulsa rally, which saw at least eight Trump advanced team staffers in attendance that day test positive for coronavirus as well. Kane, uh, for his part, had posted a photo of himself that day at the rally, seated closely among other attendees with no facial coverings. Kane had announced his candidacy for presidency uh, for the presidency back in 2011. After being egged on, essentially, by Fox News, he briefly gained traction in the race with his 999 tax reform plan, which would have replaced most uh, all, almost all current taxes with a 9% income tax, a 9% corporate tax, a 9% na- national sales tax. But after about seven months, he dropped his bid for the nomination amid sexual harassment allegations, which he denied. Donald uh, Trump spoke highly of him today. But speaking of denial, Kane was not the only high-profile Republican to die today from COVID-19. Bill Montgomery, the co-founder of the right-wing student group Turning Point USA, died from complications of the virus on Thursday. In a statement memorializing the 80-year-old Montgomery, Just to give you an idea of the astroturf at work here, he was the 80-year-old co-founder of the Republican student group Turning Point USA. Uh, They called him the group's first believer and senior advisor. On the uh, Sunday edition of his podcast, Turning Point's other co-founder, Charlie Kirk, said, quote, do not force me to wear a mask. It's that simple. I'm not going to do it. He was banned for a brief time from Twitter in late March for falsely claiming that hydroxychloroquine was, quote, 100 percent effective in treating the coronavirus. Well, Herman Cain also made similar claims. Apparently, the drug was not 100 percent effective for either he uh, or Bill Montgomery. In late June, Trump spoke to a packed audience of young Turning Point USA supporters at a megachurch in Phoenix, few people in the audience practiced social distancing or wore masks. Also today, civil rights icon Congressman John Lewis was laid to rest in Atlanta. He was hailed, of course, as a founding father of a fairer, better U.S. He was eulogized on Thursday by three former presidents who urged Americans to work to continue the work of the uh, civil rights icon in fighting injustice during a moment of racial reckoning. Donald Trump did not attend the ceremony, nor did he bother to take time to pay his respects to the voting rights champion as he lie in state at the U.S. Capitol over the past several days. The longtime member of Congress even issued his own call to action on Thursday in an essay written in his final days that he asked the New York Times to publish on the day of his funeral. In it, he challenged the next generation to lay to lay down the heavy burdens of hate at last. He recalled the teachings of Martin Luther King Jr., who Lewis spoke right before when he was just 23 years old at the 1963 March on Washington, where King gave his famous I Have a Dream speech. Referring to King, Lewis wrote in his Times op-ed, quote, he said, we are all complicit when we tolerate injustice. He said it is not enough to say it will get better by and by. He said each of us has a moral obligation to stand up, speak up, and speak out. 
He wrote, in my life, I have done all I can to demonstrate that the way of peace, the way of love and nonviolence is the more excellent way. Now it is your turn to let freedom ring. After nearly a week of observances that took his body from his birthplace in Alabama to the nation's capital, to his final resting place in Atlanta, mourners in face masks to guard against coronavirus spread out across pews at the city's landmark Ebenezer Baptist Church once pastored by Reverend uh, Martin Luther King Jr. himself. Former President Barack Obama called Lewis a man of pure joy and unbreakable perseverance during a fiery eulogy that was both deeply personal and political. The nation's first black president connected Lewis's legacy to the ongoing fight against those who are doing their darndest to discourage people from voting by closing polling locations and targeting minorities and students with restrictive ID laws and attacking our voting rights with surgical precision. President Obama said that uh, these people were even undermining the Postal Service in the run-up to an election that's going to be dependent on mail-in ballots so people don't get sick. We'll talk about that with my guest coming up momentarily. During the remarks, Obama called for making Election Day a federal holiday, restoring voting rights to the formerly incarcerated, automatic voter registration, and the full enfranchisement of citizens of D.C. and Puerto Rico. Nothing that, uh, noting, I should say, that all of that uh, must be done, even if it means ditching the filibuster. Obama's words came just hours after President Donald Trump suggested delaying the November election. That was an odd suggestion, quite frankly, given that in April, Trump had ruled out the prospect of trying to change the election after Democratic rival Joe Biden predicted that Trump would try to do exactly that. Trump said, I'm not thinking about that at all. Not at all. And then in March, Trump opposed moves by several states to delay their presidential primaries because of the coronavirus. But today, for some reason, Donald Trump sang a different tune suddenly on Twitter. He said with universal mail-in voting, not absentee voting, which is good, making a distinction between those, uh, 2020 will be the most inaccurate and fraudulent election in history. That was in all caps. So you know he means it. Uh, Yes, he does. Uh, He said, it will be a great embarrassment to the USA. Delay the election until people can properly, securely, and safely vote. Question mark, question mark, question mark. Now, of course, uh, he knows that the election cannot be delayed without an act of Congress. But he is trying to put in Americans' minds here that uh, the election will be inaccurate and fraudulent so that, yes, he'll be able to make those claims on Election Day and beyond. Nonetheless, the idea drew immediate pushback from Democrats and Republicans alike The date of the presidential election, the Tuesday after the first Monday in November in every fourth year, that is enshrined in federal law. That would require an act of Congress to change. Even top Republicans in Congress quickly rebuffed the suggestion. So after facing blowback from Republicans for even floating the idea, Trump appeared to retweet retreat on Twitter in the afternoon, suggesting he was just trying to highlight the problems with mail-in balloting. That's all. 
He said he was glad he was able to get the very dishonest, lamestream media to finally start talking about it. But there was, in truth, a reason for Trump's tweet above and beyond uh, putting the idea that the election will be inaccurate and fraudulent uh, into the into the media, into the minds of his supporters. Uh, the other reason uh, was not just to try to postpone the election. It was to try and get media to talk about anything other than the news that broke just minutes before his tweet. Not coincidentally. Just minutes earlier, the government reported that the U.S. economy shrank at a dizzying 32.9% annual rate in the April to June quarter, the second quarter of this year. By far the worst quarterly plunge ever in our nation's history. By far. That, as the coronavirus outbreak, which he ignored for months and is still largely ignoring, has shut down businesses, has thrown tens of millions of Americans out of work, sending unemployment surging to 14.7%. To give you a sense of how bad an annualized GDP plunge of 32.9% actually is, during the Great Depression in the 1930s, it took three years for the GDP to approach negative 30%. Donald Trump has accomplished that in a matter of months. As my guest joining me momentarily, David Dayan of the American Prospect wrote today, that is, quote, a titanic fall with no parallel in modern history. Add to that the more than uh, a million Americans who applied for new unemployment benefits last week for the first time, that for the 19th week in a row, resulting in some 30 million Americans now collecting unemployment benefits. As the extended $600 a week payment from the Congressional CARES Act expires this week, and Republicans have been unable to come up with a replacement for it. So with all of that, little wonder Donald Trump is desperately hoping to change the conversation just three months out from the election as his poll numbers continue to plummet. But believe it or not, there is some brighter news today. Oh, good. Yes. And it comes out of all places from Congress, which finally acted like Congress is supposed to yesterday, at least for a few hours in a stunning and wildly overdue congressional hearing, focusing on big tech monopolies and how even without a global pandemic, these companies are crushing all of us. David Dayan, the man who just happened to write a book about monopolies, joins us next to discuss it. Uh, this really good news for a change. Yes out of Congress. That's straight ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. The broadcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com/donate. That's bradblog.com/donate. And thanks. Welcome back to the broadcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. On Wednesday at the start of a remarkable five-hour-long hearing in the U.S. House Antitrust Subcommittee. Did you even know there was such a committee? 
with four big tech CEOs, Tim Cook of Apple, Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook, Sundar Pichai of Google, and Jeff Bezos of Amazon. The Democratic chair of the committee, David Cicilline of Rhode Island, began this way. Many of the practices used by these companies have harmful economic effects. They discourage entrepreneurship, destroy jobs, hike costs, and degrade quality. Simply put, they have too much power. Their dominance is killing the small businesses, manufacturing, and overall dynamism that are the engines of the American economy. Open markets are predicated on the idea that if a company harms people, consumers, workers, and business partners will choose another option. We're here today because that choice is no longer possible. American democracy has always been at war against monopoly power. Throughout our history, we've recognized that concentrated markets and concentrated political control are incompatible with democratic ideals. As gatekeepers of the digital economy, these platforms enjoy the power to pick winners and losers, to shake down small businesses, and enrich themselves while choking off competitors. Their ability to dictate terms, call the shots, upend entire sectors, and inspire fear represent the powers of a private government. Our founders would not bow before a king, nor should we bow before the emperors of the online economy. Wow. And that was David Cicilline talking to uh, a bunch of folks who are undoubtedly campaign supporters of him and his party and the Republican Party. It was, by dozens of accounts that I've reviewed today, a remarkable and unspeakingly long overdue confrontation with the heads of big tech titans that have all but squeezed the life out of any third-party competitors by buying them up or simply crushing them or folding them into their own anti-competitive businesses at a very high premium, paid by those third-party companies and suppliers who have no choice now but to bow before the big tech monopolies, which have been allowed to avoid largely any antitrust regulation now for decades. Surprisingly, most of the Congress members on the subcommittee, both Democratic and Republican, received high marks for their research and probing questions. How often does that happen? I'd say pretty much never these days. As Matt Stoller writes at The Guardian today, almost any moment of the four-hour hearing offered a stunning illustration of the extent of the bad behavior of these corporations. Take Amazon, whose CEO Jeff Bezos often seemed off-balance and unaware of his corporation's own practices. Congresswoman Lucy McBath played audio of a seller on Amazon tearfully describing how her business and livelihood was arbitrarily destroyed by Amazon re restricting sales of their product. For no reason the seller could discern. Bezos acted surprised, as he often did throughout the hearing. Representative Jamie Raskin presented an email from Bezos saying about one acquisition that, quote, we're buying market position, not technology. Bezos then admitted Amazon buys companies purely because of their market position, demonstrating that many of hundreds of acquisitions these tech companies have made were probably illegal. We saw similar concessions from Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg, from uh, Google's CEO, and uh, it was just an extraordinary hearing that went on for four, five hours. Fortunately, the voices of small business people afraid of retaliation came through their elected leaders, Stoller observed. One said, I pay 20% of my income to Uncle Sam in taxes and 30% to Apple. 
That, according to one member of Congress who noted that she had heard that from business people, Democrat Pramila Jayapal asked Google's CEO why the corporation kept directing ad revenue to its own network of properties instead of sending ad traffic to the best available results. Over and over, the CEOs had similar answers. I don't know. I'll get back to you. I'm not aware of that or long, rambling attempts to deflect, followed by members of Congress cutting them off to get answers to crisp questions. And two supposedly antitrust enforcers for the last 15 years, Stoller notes, the Federal Trade Commission and the Department of Justice's Antitrust Division, stretching back to the Bush and Obama administrations, bear massive culpability for the concentration of wealth and power in the hands of these corporations that were on display on Wednesday. It's rare to see Congress cover itself in glory, but believe it or not, that's what happened, he says. As David, David Cicilline uh, put it in his, uh, at the end of his remarks, These companies as they exist today have monopoly power. Some need to be broken up, all need to be properly regulated and held accountable. As a great American Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis once said, we must make our choice. We may have democracy or we may have wealth concentrated in the hands of a few, but we can't have both. Well, guess what we have now? Joining us now is the man who just wrote a book about this exact same thing and who also spent at least five hours yesterday writing a 175 tweet thread about the hearing, reporting it live as it unfolded in a shockingly good way, incredibly enough, as David Dayan notes in his article today at the American Prospect, headlined, The Triumphant Return of Congress. Wow. David Dayan is an investigative financial journalist and the executive editor of the American Prospect, where he's also the author of their daily indispensable unsanitized report chronicling the continuing eroding state of our national battle with the global coronavirus pandemic and its ever worsening toll on our economy. And he is now, even in the middle of a pandemic, his amazingly well-timed new book, Monopolized, Life in the Age of Corporate Power is now officially available on whatever suffices for store shelves these days, which just happens to include Amazon, I bet. David Dayan, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Well, thank you. Uh, <laughs> thanks for having me. Shamefully, we haven't been able to fit you onto the show for at least a month, and we are all the poorer for it, to be frank, given the mountain of stuff, some of it long overdue, that I need to ask you about today, uh, including both the hearing and today's horrific economic numbers and the attempt to uh, pass a new coronavirus emergency relief bill. But uh, first, huge congratulations on the new book, Monopolize, sir. Well, thank you uh, for on several levels. Number one, thank you for... Uh, uh, having me on to talk about the book and, and number two thank you for uh, allowing me to interview you uh, you're actually a participant in the book where i talk about the monopolization of radio uh -huh. and uh, the effects 
on the type of content that uh, gets out to the people. Well, now, I was going to mention that at the end of our conversation but I uh, <laughs> and not give away actually what it was that I talked about in hopes <laughs> that my cameo appearance in your book might sell more of them. <laughs> well, but, I, I'm, I'm a bad marketer, so uh, I just wanted to throw that out there up front. Quite all right. Uh, uh, but, much appreciated. But fans yeah. of, of, of Brad uh, will <laughs> be delighted to uh, read his remarks in, in my book. I hope they will, and I hope they do buy it. Happily, I guess, uh, Congress gave us a, a great opportunity to talk about this book with this uh, five-hour-long hearing. Very good marketing uh, on my part. Yes. Who happened to have this come out a week before. Uh, <laughs> probably the most consequential hearings on corporate power in decades. I know that's a low bar, Yeah, but it was an incredible hearing. It, uh, no, it really was, and I want to get your thoughts because w w the first thing that occurred to me, and a full disclosure, I didn't get to watch it. I've seen pieces of it today, and I've read a lot about it today, but it's almost as if there could have been five hour-long uh, sessions with each of those four CEOs. Yeah. Uh, and more to the point, it seems as if there were so many complaints, in fact, from both sides of the aisle for a happy change that, you know, it's almost as if there hasn't been any real oversight by Congress of out-of-control anti-competitive practices for decades now or something, Dave. Yeah, I mean, I was concerned about that going into the hearing. Mm -hmm. You had four CEOs, all of which could have filled up one hearing mm -hmm. all by themselves. There was only a five-minute questioning round for each member of the committee and I felt like this is, this is set up for the CEOs to hide behind each other and mm -hmm. get saved by the bell and, and, and get you know, taken off the hook. But Democrats came into this hearing, members of that subcommittee came in very focused. Uh, they knew exactly what they wanted to talk about. They knew what, who they wanted to target. They had the information. I mean, a lot of times you hear about members of Congress being well-prepped, mm -hmm. which is kind of a backhanded compliment, because what it <laughs> right. really means is somebody else did the work and then briefed the Congress member. Right. But in this case, they were well-informed. This is the culmination of a year-long investigation, and these members had an incredible amount of knowledge about the harms that these four large corporations have been causing through the exertion of their power. And they knew exactly what to do, what to say, and, and how to really extract almost confessions, as, as you, you know, <laughs> your, your mm -hmm. excerpt from Matt Stoller's mm -hmm. story uh, uh, speaks to. They, they really extracted confessions from, from Bezos and Zuckerberg and the others about the practices that they engage in, which really are uh, illegal. Mm -hmm. Why... <laughs> Why were they so well prepared here? I know you talked about they've been looking at, into this for a year, but why this topic? Why was why did this uh, seem to touch a nerve uh, with both uh, Republicans and Democrats alike, uh, yeah. as you see it? Well, you know, this is a subcommittee. Mm -hmm. So these members, first of all, there's only 13 members of mm -hmm. the subcommittee. Mm -hmm. They were intimately involved in this investigation, it seems, uh, through every step. There was a lot of uh, uh, bipartisan work being done. Mm -hmm. uh, and then one of the really important things, and it's kind of unsung, is that David Cicilline brought in uh, a woman named Lena Kahn to be uh, one of his top counsels. 
And Lena Kahn is just one of the, the, the finest members of this anti-monopoly movement that is out there. She uh, was a Yale Law student who wrote this, this paper called Amazon's Antitrust Paradox, mm-hmm. which, you know, you don't see many law review papers get hundreds of thousands of downloads, mm-hmm. but hers did, mm. because it would, it's so clearly explained the anti-competitive conduct and the imposition of market power from Amazon. And uh, you could see Lena Khan's hand in all of these questions. Mm. Uh, she, she really uh, 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 did a fantastic job here. And, you know, it, it's, it's amazing what a little evidence can do. <laughs> I mean, they took testimony from dozens of former employees, and uh, small businesses and partners with these platform companies, people who have to live mm-hmm. on these platforms by the rules of these companies, and they got direct primary source documentation from the companies themselves, uh, uh, emails mm-hmm. and, and, and documents, and they had all of this to build their case. And they also used reporting that was out there, from investigative reporting from uh, many sources, mm-hmm. So you put that all together, and they just knew what was going on. There were a lot of parallels between the, the conduct that these firms uh, undertake, and uh, they, were, they really were able to successfully convey it. Does it have to do with the fact uh, that so many of the victims here, and, w- well, I want to talk specifically about the victims in a second because you write about them in your book as well, but so many of the victims here, sort of go across all party lines, all politics, that these are workers, these are consumers who are affected by uh, by big tech here, whether it's Amazon or Facebook, etc. Is it because we, we haven't really uh, chosen up sides on this particular issue, so to speak, politically? I mean, it is interesting. You saw, you saw Republican members, uh, Kelly Armstrong from North Dakota and Ken Buck from, mm-hmm. from Colorado, yeah. really call out these companies for their practices. When I, uh, you know, did monopolize and traveled around and talked to people, I talked to libertarians, Mm -hmm. I talked to Trump supporters, and all of them pretty much uh, had this this understanding that they had lost control to a a handful of small corporations and that this this monopoly problem was really affecting their lives. Uh, now, you did see some hijinks in right. the hearing, right, with Jim Jordan, you know, essentially whining about conservatives being deplatformed and this kind of thing, particularly on Facebook and social media. But even there, uh, what they are implicitly saying, they're mm-hmm. working the refs is what they're doing, right? right? They're trying to get their content up to the top of Facebook. But that's secure with an understanding that if you get your stuff broadcast on Facebook, you know it's going to everybody mm-hmm. because that's the only channel there is. That's the level of power that Facebook has. Right. And so even the sort of whiny, silly comments were based in an understanding of market power. And th- th- yeah. th- well, on the, along those lines, I mean, they complain, of course, that the, the conservatives are their voices are being squelched on these platforms and stuff. A, I don't know that there's any real evidence that that is the case, unlike the actual evidence that was brought forward for so many of the other issues that were raised. But even without the evidence that it is happening, the fact is, 
it can happen. And Facebook and Google have extraordinary powers, whether they uh, exercise it or not, to, yes, uh, they could silence Republicans. Right. They could silence Democrats. That seems to be an incredibly precarious place to be, whether it is actually being done or not. Yeah, I think you're right. And, you know, they're working the refs, but the problem is that Facebook is the ref. Mm-hmm. You know, I yeah. mean, they're, they're, this platform now has this extreme power to control the flow of information and turn it up or turn it down based on their, their you know, black box algorithm. Mm-hmm. And, and yes, that is the problem ultimately, and that is a market power problem. You write at the prospect today uh, that the victims identified by the hearing were not necessarily consumers. And we think, you know, uh, when it comes to monopolies, we think, oh, okay, this is bad for the consumer because one company buys up everything and then they can raise prices. But really, and, and this is what you discuss a lot in your book as well, third-party businesses, suppliers and partners forced to work with big tech and submit to their control or be crushed out of business, uh, seemingly the very definition of monopoly control that antitrust laws are supposed to keep in check. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, and I was uh, very happy to see that focus in the hearing, and it, it was something I focused on mm-hmm. within my uh, reporting in Monopolize. The way that merger policy and antitrust policy has been conducted over the last 40 years it's sought to turn everybody into a consumer. You know, we have this thing called the consumer welfare standard, and that's the standard by which mergers are judged. And it comes from Robert Bork, yes. actually, the failed Supreme Court justice. And what he said was that if a merger makes companies more efficient and that leads to better consumer welfare, and by that they meant price, then a merger should be approved. And the, his corollary to that was any company that gets bigger is more efficient. So there's no way to actually deny a merger. It's, it's a perfectly circular argument, but it's taken hold in the judiciary and in the uh, antitrust mm-hmm. agencies. You know, in the Reagan administration, mm-hmm. guidelines were changed to how they look at mergers, essentially in line with Bork's analysis. So I think it was very important that this didn't focus on consumers that this focused on all of the other aspects in mm-hmm. which monopolies harm uh, various sectors of society, whether they are workers or uh, small business partners, uh, a democracy itself. Mm-hmm. We are more than our Amazon Prime accounts. You know, <laughs> we, we, are, we are all of these other things. We are citizens living in a democracy. We are members of a community. And if these companies have so much power that they can demonstrably transform the uh, way in which we live our lives, then that's, that's a problem that, that needs to be solved with real reform. And i got to tell you, every time I flip open the book, I find, you know, even if I only have a minute or two to read a page or two, I find something that I didn't know that, I, uh, that is just fascinating, including that information on Bork, and basically how he was able, in the 80s, to take the existing laws that are still on the books, I, I, we still have these antitrust laws, but just by reinterpreting them, right. uh, all of this was allowed to happen, and all of this that seems to be in direct contradiction of what those laws were actually meant to do when they were created. That's absolutely right. And, and, yeah. and even on Bork's own terms, they fail. Uh, there's been work done by a law professor named John Quoka, 
who looked back at 46 mergers to see, did prices really go down, or was that just sort of an economist running off his mouth? And turns out prices went up in 38 Mm -hmm. of 46 cases. So even on Bork's own terms, this fails. But the problem is is that it's so narrow-cast that you can, you know, a company can find any economist to say, oh, well, of course, if you look at my model, it shows that if these two companies merge, there will be all these efficiencies mm-hmm. and, and prices will, will go down and consumers will benefit. The problem is we've got to step outside that and look at it from the context of all these other actors in, in society. And there's no review period, right? In other words, they can make any claims they want. They can bring in an economist who say, oh, this is going to be better for the consumer. It's going to lower prices. Right. A year or two later down the road, we find out the opposite has happened. There's no review process. There's Once no they're approved, sort of they're in. Yeah, there's yeah. no look-back review, really. And that's actually one of the things that you know, anti-monopoly uh, experts are calling for. And uh, I think this hearing was a complete indictment of the Federal Trade Commission Mm -hmm. and the Antitrust Division of the Justice Department, who had access to all this information that the subcommittee had. They had all of these documents. They had all of the ability to conduct an investigation. In fact, it's their job to do so. And they did not do that and wave through merger after merger after merger and and the the people who had authority under democratic administrations mm-hmm. and republican administrations who who were responsible for this failure should not be listened to again and they should not hold power again. And and this is a very important point to make, because this is not just happening under Donald Trump. It was also happening under Barack Obama. It was also happening under George W. Bush. It's been going on for decades now. I don't even know why we have an antitrust division at the Department of Justice at this point. I can't, uh, you know, I mean, they, they basically waved through everything. Did Wednesday's hearing, David Dayan, give permission, so to speak, to those agencies to actually try and enforce the concerns that were brought to light by Congress that apparently the the FTC and the DOJ have been so reluctant to enforce for some reason. In my view, it, it gave demands to to those agencies to shape up and, and, and clean up their act. There was this incredible moment where Jim Sensenbrenner, who kind of, he's, he's the Republican mm-hmm. from Wisconsin, he's yep. retiring, he's, he's a, a longtime member of Congress, and, and he's, he's sort of defending the companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, that was his role in the hearing. But one thing he said in their defense was that the Federal Trade Commission had all this information about how Facebook warned Instagram that it would clone its service if it didn't merge with them, mm-hmm. and then Facebook eventually did, that, that the FTC had that information when they reviewed the merger and they let it go. And they could have blocked it and they didn't. Yes, he's right about that, and that, that, is, that calls them completely on the carpet. They had the ability to, to, to do the right thing here and to enforce the law, and they failed to do so. And, argu- and yeah. yeah, Well, no, ar- arguably, I was going to say, these, these members of Congress who do get huge donations from all of these companies, they arguably have more of a reason to ignore this stuff than uh, the people do at the at the DOJ, the career professionals at the DOJ Antitrust Division, at the uh, Federal uh, Trade Commission, and yet they're ignoring it, and Congress is picking up this ball. It, it 
I, I think this is one of the reasons why it caught so many of us by surprise. What if, if anything, after Wednesday's almost five-hour hearing uh, and after writing an entire book on the matter, Monopolized, Life in the Age of Corporate Power, what's the actual ultimate solution here to this problem? And, and is any of it actually possible anytime within the foreseeable future? Well, short term, there's going to be a report written. That's what the purpose of this hearing was. Mm -hmm. The subcommittee is going to write a report with recommendations on both how the law can be enforced and whether any new laws are needed. So there's the short term. That's going to be a blueprint and, and sort of a yardstick by which we measure a potential Joe Biden administration. Now, he's going to have the ability to name new heads of the antitrust division, new uh, commissioners and chair uh, of the Federal Trade Commission, mm -hmm. and uh, those people will be in a position to actually enforce the laws that are on the books uh, that they can, can use to uh, break up the extreme power of these agencies. And it's not just those two agencies. You know, there's a distinction to be made between antitrust laws mm -hmm. and anti-monopoly laws. There are mm -hmm. regulations that can promote competition and ensure that companies don't get too big and too powerful, uh, whether you're talking about the FCC or you're talking about the, the Department of Agriculture or even the Defense Department. Uh, it really is through the entire gamut of the federal government, and those personnel decisions will be critical as well. Mm. You know, one thing that we've seen in, in the antitrust agencies is a lot of revolving door stuff. You know, uh, uh, people who... Uh, uh, work for companies and then come into the government to regulate the companies yep. that they were previously working for. Uh, and we need, in, in terms of personnel, a much broader conception of, of diversity, really, mm -hmm. right? It's not just diversity of race and gender. All of that is important. But we need diversity of experience. Yep. All of your people cannot come out of the industries that they're supposed to regulate. Right. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, if that is done... And, if, and, and I think the only way that gets done is that the momentum from this hearing is built and a movement where a popular movement to uh, 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 understand and, and work against the power of monopolies is what is going to carry us forward. Uh, it has in the past. That's how we got these laws in the first place is because the, the people demanded the political system to respond, mm -hmm. and it's how we're going to get them now. You know, uh, Big Tech, uh, who was uh, on parade in that hearing on Wednesday, is, is actually a fairly well-covered monopoly to some extent. Everybody seems to have a problem with, with Big Tech, you know, Facebook, Google, uh, Amazon, etc. But your book uh, actually goes into how it, how uh, this sort of uh, monopoly power pervades virtually every part of our lives, uh, whether we know it or not. From the grocery store to the hospitals to our malls to travel to television to the radio. Yes, the radio that we are allowed to hear. <laughs> just by way of a hint of what I talk about to the you know the, to the cup of coffee that we drink and 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 we may have to discuss this more next time but the book was actually written before the covid crisis but you've got some seemingly incredibly prescient stuff in there including on on threats to our medical supply chain that I told you uh, we we spoke I think uh, via email saying you must have written some of this stuff as an update after the crisis began to unfold I did not. 
Um, this was uh, just just serendipity. Uh, uh, that particular chapter is about these middlemen that mm-hmm. supply hospitals. So uh, you have medical suppliers and you have hospitals, and, and those networks are pretty concentrated on their own right. But then you have this group sitting in the middle called group purchasing organizations, mm-hmm. and they contract with hospitals to supply them with medical supplies, and then they buy them from the suppliers and they give them to the hospitals. And the way that they operate, first of all, they're skimming off the top, so it's harder for the medical supply companies to stay in business, especially on low-margin kind of products like generic drugs that have been generic for decades. Mm -hmm. But they also force these companies into sole-source contracts. So if you're a hospital, you only get your syringes from one company or you only get your standard drugs that you use from one company. Mm -hmm. And you're locked into a contract where if you bought... 100% 100% from that company in one year, you have to buy 90% of the, uh, that product from that company the next year, or else you lose all these discounts that the, the GPO is giving you. And so uh, it really is a monopolized system. It's a monopolized situation. And any disruption in that monopoly can have these cascading effects. Yep. So what happened? In 2017, there was a hurricane that went through Puerto Rico. Uh, uh, Half of all IV bags in America, which is saline solution in a bag, Mm -hmm. salt and water in a bag, are are made on the island of Puerto Rico. And when that hurricane came through, all of a sudden, the the manufacturing facilities had to be shut down. Mm -hmm. And so for months afterwards, and actually for years before, because any disruption causes this, uh, IV bags were in short supply. This is salt and water in a bag, <laughs> yes. and we have a shortage of it in the United well, States of America. Uh, not, uh, you know, I was told that market economies don't have shortages. So this is only socialist economies that uh-huh. have all these terrible shortages, right? But yeah. in, a, in the United States, salt and water in a bag <laughs> is in shortage. We, Think about that. Uh, we can't make... Paper masks and gowns to get. Right. I mean, this was what uh, has been am- amazing to me over these past few months. The things that we're facing I- in shortages here. These are not high tech, difficult things to come up with. Sure, the you know the vaccines and all that. That's more complicated. But we're we don't have you know plastic uh, gowns to put onto uh, our, our frontline healthcare workers and so that you argue in the book essentially is uh, is an effect of these monopolies controlling the uh, supply chain and by the way we see it, saw it with meat with toilet paper <laughs> i mean it's it's obscene you nailed a lot of this stuff in your book before it ever came to pass and before we ever, uh, you know, found ourselves actually in a national security crisis because of it. Uh, yeah. David, I, I got to take a quick break here. Uh, can can you give me a, just a few more minutes because I want to talk about what's going on in Congress, uh, speaking of uh, COVID and the relief bill. Uh, can you hang around for just a few short minutes? Sure. Thank you. I'm speaking with David Dayan, executive editor of The American Prospect, author of the uh, brand new book, titled Monopolized, Life in the Age of Corporate Power. And by the way, if you think it's going to be some sort of a treatise on on the economy that's uh, academic and boring, you would be wrong, though you might have to purchase it via Amazon. We'll find out. (laughs) We're back with David Day in in a second. I'm Brad Friedman. You are listening to The Bradcast. (laughs) 
Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Money, money, money. Must be funny in the rich man's world. Yep. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com speaking with David Dayan, investigative financial journalist and executive editor of the American Prospect, and yes, author of the brand new book, Monopolized Life in the Age of Corporate Power. But in his day job, He writes a little column called Unsanitized for the American Prospect uh, about the mess unfolding when it comes to the COVID crisis and what it's doing to our economy. Today, as he notes, we learn that the economy dropped at a 33 percent annualized rate in the second quarter. He calls it a titanic fall with no parallel in modern history. The uh, just this uh, stunning drop in the GDP uh, like no one has ever seen. At the same time, Congress has been spending the last uh, several months and I should be more careful. Republicans in Congress have been spending the last couple months doing absolutely nothing to put together an emergency relief bill. To follow up the CARES Act that actually, uh, while it had problems, it helped uh, by uh, expanding unemployment and doing other measures to help keep the economy afloat right now. David, uh, finally, the Republicans have come out with a proposal for a follow up to the CARES Act. I don't think that Senate Republicans, when they when they finally revealed their long-awaited, I guess we'll call it an opening bid for the next uh, uh, emergency package, I don't think they really had thought it through uh, what it would actually sound like on the radio when they decided to name their package the Republican Heals Act. But that doesn't seem to be the only thing that they have gotten wrong in this bill, as you described today at The Prospect, uh, where you say this uh, uh, bill has now gone sideways at this point, uh, even as expanded unemployment benefits now for a record number of -of out-of-work Americans has um, has ended as of this week. So uh, what happened and how did this bill go so sideways? Well, it's become completely irrelevant, and that's, uh, don't take my word for it, that's how Donald Trump described it. Um, uh, the Heals the Act was an attempt on the part of Mitch McConnell to create uh, lightning in a bottle once again. This, this was the script that he followed in March, where he wrote a partisan bill in his office, and Democrats said they were shocked, and then they tweaked some of it, and then they passed substantially the same bill with mm-hmm. with the same baseline uh, with and some additional tweaks including the fiscal support uh, for struggling Americans so he tried to do this again he waited until the last minute hoping that the countdown clock for uh, unemployment benefits to expire mm-hmm. would force Democrats to, to come to the table and do something and he put out this bill but it was so comically bad I mean uh, uh, he was mostly concerned with getting liability protection for businesses 
that were negligent in giving coronavirus to employees or customers. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's all he really cared about in this thing. Uh, in addition to cutting unemployment benefits by about 67%, uh, in addition to uh, not including any money for state and local governments who are completely cash-strapped because of the loss of revenue mm-hmm. in this crisis, uh, and, and, you know, on and on. No money for the Postal Service, no money for uh, uh, expanded uh, vote-by-mail services and things, mm-hmm. and voting uh, uh, protections. Uh, nothing. Uh, and, and, and so uh, it, it just wasn't, it, <laughs> there wasn't the, the kind of attention that there was in March to what McConnell was doing. In fact, the, the White House immediately started negotiating directly with Democrats without McConnell involved whatsoever well is that where we are now because republicans uh in this proposal you know they're now proposing cutting benefits to workers in the middle of a pandemic where most of them are simply unable to go back to work at all that just you know it seems to be a fact uh as we are three months from a huge presidential election you know mitch mcconnell uh, he's evil and he's terrible and all of that but he's pretty he's a pretty good politician I'm not sure what the GOP was thinking here. I mean, couldn't they just simply uh, have offered to temporarily extend the unemployment payments, at least, until a permanent deal is is struck to try Uh, and save themselves? They have done that, and the White House has done that, and Democrats have said, no, uh, there is just as much a crisis of evictions. Uh, Mm -hmm. The moratorium for that has lifted. That's not in the bill. Uh, there's just as much of a crisis with state and local governments who have to plan their uh, their budgets for the next year. That's not in the bill. We need to do everything. If we short-term extend uh, uh, unemployment insurance, mm-hmm. we're going to lose that ability to, you know, have that be the anchor of a larger bill. Mm. And so Democrats have rejected this idea of a short-term extension, uh, they they want a, a deal somewhat similar to the Heroes Act, which was passed uh, by the House two and a half months ago. We we did not need to be in this position. Right. Two and a half months ago, the Heroes Act passed, and uh, Mitch McConnell sat on his hands, hoping he could get some some leverage and some timing. Uh, and then there were, uh, I mean, one problem with McConnell's position is there are so much. There's so much dissent within the Republican caucus. Mm-hmm. There was, it was impossible to get a consensus. And even now, uh, there's an admission that half of the Senate Republicans wouldn't vote for the bill that McConnell put out. So there's no leverage within the Republican caucus. Uh, they're going to need Democratic votes even to pass anything in the Senate, let alone the House. And that's why there's these direct negotiations. But they seem to be going absolutely nowhere. Oh. And, and, you know, it's it's amusing when when uh, Republicans fall apart. But the fact is, this is this is very real for a whole lot of people. This is uh, life sustaining funds at this point. This is preventing them from being thrown out onto the streets. They need to get their act together. I don't expect they will. Uh, very quickly, David, the Heals Act does include a twenty five billion dollar grant, as I understand it, to save the uh, U.S. Postal Service. At a time, the, the, the Heroes Act. Does, yeah. The uh, oh, the the Heroes Act. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, the the Heroes Act, Act does not. Does the not. Act contains nothing for the Postal Service, and as you know, uh, the new Postmaster General yep. Louis DeJoy, who is a Trump donor, is slowly undermining the Postal Service from within. Yeah. 
cutting overtime, trying to cut back offices, saying that uh, uh, postal workers should just leave the mail if it slows them down, right. uh, which is causing these backups and delays. If you talk to people, so they're waiting days, weeks for their mail. And, of course, we have an election coming up yes. that is going to rely very much on prompt mail service. Yeah. And so, you know, you put two and two together here and you see uh, what Republicans are getting at. Has it uh, given any more leverage at this point to the Democrats uh, that all of this stuff needs to happen before the election? Or is this a good reason for the uh, for the Republicans to not give a damn to let the Postal Service die, even if it means, you know, actual Americans will die along with it? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, there, there certainly is a, a, a hidden agenda here on the part of the Republicans. Uh, however, I don't, think, I don't think this is helping them any. Uh, as much as they might try to suppress the vote, uh, that, that's seemingly their last chance. And, uh, you know, if you look at any poll, you see that Republicans are, are due for a blowout here uh, because of the terrible policies that they've put forward to lead to 150,000 Americans dying. I mean, that's ultimately this is about policy. Yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, if they're going to add on an economic depression on top of that public health disaster, uh, how well is that going to go for them in November, even if they're trying to stop the means by which people can register their dissent through the ballot box? Yeah. And that's what it's all going to come down to, I'm afraid. Uh, David Dayen, uh, well, let's talk more often. Uh, he is the uh, executive editor at the American Prospect, uh, author of their daily must-read unsanitized report, and now his new book, Monopolized, Life in the Age of Corporate Power, is also a must-read. And we'll uh, continue talking about that book, I suspect, as the weeks move forward. Uh, you can find David at prospect.org, and you can find him personally and his 175-tweet thread <laughs> literally on, uh, on Wednesday's uh, uh, hearing in the U.S. House on the Twitters at ddayan. David, always great speaking with you, my friend. We'll do it again soon. All right, thanks. Okay, we got to go. Running late, (laughs) I know. Uh, My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, download it for free anytime at bradblog.com. Thanks to those of you who support our work at bradblog.com slash donate. Drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Brad Blog. We will see you there until we see you here next time. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. <laughs>